All right, I'm going to dive right into it. Warren Buffett once said in an interview, and I paraphrase, about his $26 billion gift to the Gates Foundation. And oh, how I wish somebody would give me $26 billion. My gift has not changed my lifestyle one bit, he says. I still go to the movies I want to go to and eat at the restaurants I want to dine at. But what about the person who gives a gift that requires that they can't go to the movies or eat out? They are the true givers, the true doers, the the true heroes of generosity. Close quote. Friends, I believe Warren Buffett was on to something in his contrast of his giving out of his wealth and others that give out of their poverty. What we need to learn about generosity is that it is not measured by how much you give, but the attitude of the heart by which you give. Church, God is not concerned about how much money you give him more than he is concerned with how much of yourself you give him. And our text today affords us the privilege and opportunity to travel back in time as if it were and pink, peek into the ancient window of the early church and to witness and learn how the gospel produces generosity and moreover what it looks like for churches in different geographical locations to support one another. If you have your Bibles, turn quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. And when you're there, say amen. Well, some of you are quick. That's right. That's the Bible thumpers, all right? If you need me to wait on you, say wait a minute. I'm going to wait on you because I got the fruit of patience. I still hear Bibles going. We're going to wait on our brothers and sisters. That's all right. And use the table of contents. Don't be ashamed. That's what it's there for. Some people use it to find Genesis. Lord, help them, right? (laughs) You don't know what Genesis is. You're lost beyond all loss. All right, if you that, say amen. If you're still looking, we're moving on. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. By necessity this morning, we're going to deal with some some of the historical background at the start here, but I believe you're going to get a feel for what is coming in the richness of this wonderful section from Paul to his beloved Corinthians. Here in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, Paul addresses the matter of giving with the church of Corinth in his second biblical letter to them. Paul accomplishes his teaching task on the subject of generosity to his students in Corinth by model tax by citing the remarkable giving of their smaller sister churches in Macedonia. But before we talk about the churches in Macedonia, I want to enlighten you on why Paul is bringing up this subject of generosity 
or giving to the church of Corinth. Paul is bringing up this subject of generosity or giving to the church of Corinth because he is raising money for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Uh, The church of Jerusalem, if you don't know, is the first church in history. Now let me tell you a little bit about the church in Jerusalem. It had many, many poor Christians who were in great need in the first church. Can you believe that? God's first church, they were struggling. From its beginnings, if you remember, on the day of Pentecost, the church had to face a problem of extreme poverty among its people. The church of Jerusalem was the poorest of poor. They were struggling. Uh, Acts helps us to understand this a little bit of the condition of their situation. In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 44, it says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were so poor that those in the church who had, had to sell that others may have also. Church of Jerusalem were giving up their belongings and opening up their homes for their brothers and sisters that they may have their daily needs. And I hope you're getting a a feel for the church already at the start here that church is more than just showing up, parking our car in the parking lot and sitting down and hearing a sermon. We ought to care about one another and find out what's going on with our brothers and sisters in the church and be willing to give ourselves for the betterment of them. You see, they were so poor, the saints who had extra had to sell what they had. And I know people in churches even now where one or two people are carrying the financial weight of the church in order for the church to stay alive. And I got to tell you that it is quite difficult when the plumbing goes wrong and the roof uh, is leaking and you don't have the financial ability to pay for that. And you got to call on the couple people who are uh, financially rich or have material possessions to help with that. You see, the church in Jerusalem, they were not balling. They didn't have a whole lot of money. They didn't have a bunch of blue-collar or white-collar folks in their congregation on Sunday morning. They didn't have Lexuses and BMWs in their parking lot. In fact, they wouldn't have had that because that didn't come out, so they had a bunch of sandals in the parking lot and maybe some horses. Amen? Hopefully the nice sandals, right, because they had to walk everywhere, you know? That's why I take my head off when Jesus washes their feet because people walking there with toes all out and all that, you know, don't nothing to do with that. That is, people, so the church of Jerusalem was made up of pilgrims. That is people who had made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the celebration of the Pentecost. Pentecost was a Jewish feast. It followed 40 days after the Passover. If you recall on the day of Pentecost when Peter stood up and preached the gospel to the multitudes, 3,000 got saved. And what happened to those 3,000 people? Well, a lot of them stayed in Jerusalem because if you remember, the first church was the church of Jerusalem. So a lot of them camped out at the church of Jerusalem. Well, they had to take on servant jobs and live with their brothers and sisters in order to make it, which gives you an economic disaster. Hopefully you're seeing the picture here. Paul, by the time he writes to the saints of Corinth, has already collected money for an entire year for the church in Jerusalem. Uh, Make sure that we're all on the same page. Paul is writing to the church of Corinth, 
so that they may give to the church in Jerusalem, and he is going to spur them on through telling them about the giving of the Macedonian church. Paul has already received money from the church of Macedonia in Achaia. Paul, with the heart of enthusiasm and joy, like a parent on Christmas Day, can't wait to present this monetary gift to the church in Jerusalem. Paul now turns to the saints of Corinth to also join in this wonderful blessing of helping their poor brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Now, with this historical background in mind, we have a wonderful gateway into our passage this morning. Look at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Paul now turns the spotlight, as if it were, onto the church of Macedonia. Now, the church of Macedonia was made up of three churches located in Greece, two of which we find letters that Paul has written to. The church of Philippi, to which, which Philippians was written. The church of Thessalonica, which received the two Thessalonian letters. And the church of Berea. So, Paul, when he refers to the church of Macedonia, he's referring to three churches in particular. Two of them, you have letters in your 66 books in your Bible. The church of Philippi, the church of Thessalonica, and the church of Berea. Those three churches made up the Macedonian churches. Paul here in the opening verses of chapter 8 is writing to inform the church of Corinth about the giving of the Macedonian church. Now, there is something unique in verse 1 that we cannot pass by. If you just read that and you move on, you're going to miss a great deal of what this text wants to convey. And if you slow down long enough, you can almost hear that old ancient hymn in the background, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Before Paul talks about the generosity of the Macedonian church, he rightly talks about the generosity of God. Why? Because at the bedrock of any pure generosity, it always starts with the grace of God. In order for us to be generous people, we must first experience the grace of God coming down to us vertically so that we may then pour it out horizontally. It's the only way that we become pure giving people is when we experience the love of God. The love of God ought to do something to you. And the reason why the church of Macedonia hearts unfolded like flowers for their brothers and sisters is because the grace of God was shining down on them. The gospel church ought to make us generous. When we think of God dying for us and opening up his heart to sinners and blessing us beyond our wildest imagination. That ought to do something to our hearts, namely make us generous people, the just for the unjust, the innocent for the guilty. What is this holy conundrum that we're dealing with, that the God of the universe would be generous to those who have rejected him and spit in his face? Romans says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. No one gets the gospel and remains a self-centered, egotistic, self-glory-seeking person. When the grace of God appears in our lives, chains are broken. 
Sin loses its power and we are filled with the love of God. There is no way we remain stingy after experiencing such grace. I'm talking about stingy folks. Folks that don't want to give you a nacho. You ever had a person with, a, with some nachos? And you, you, you kind of you slide up on them like, can I get a nacho? And they just hold it like a football. And, and, and after, you know, you, you persuade them for a while, they'll give you a chip. And then you ask for some cheese. And they won't let you dip it in the cheese. And you just like, you are one stingy person. But how many people in the room know when you experience the love of God, you're never the same again? You're never the same again. The love of God has a way of changing us and altering us and transforming us. And I'm praying this morning, if you have yet to experience the grace of Almighty God, that this morning you will not leave this place unchanged, that you would not leave this place without encountering the love of God. The gospel has the power to turn the most wicked person into a self-giving instrument of God. And I figured this morning, you may not believe me. You may question me this morning. So I brought a witness this morning. I want to call Zacchaeus to the stand this morning. Zacchaeus, would you come and talk to God's people this morning? In the gospel, he says, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down, for I must stay at your house today. Jesus would come out of nowhere and say, hey, I'm staying at your crib today. I'm going to chill with you this morning. I wish he would come right now. I live right across the parking lot, and we would go right over there and feast and have dinner if Jesus was to show up. And then verse 7 says, and when they saw it, they all grumbled. Now watch the haters. He has gone in to be with the guest of a man who is a sinner. Jesus was often accused for hanging with people that were broken, jacked up, whose society had declared no good. But Jesus would hang with broken, messed up, jacked up people. And I'm so glad that I serve a God that is willing to hang with a sinner such as myself. If it wasn't for the grace of God, I wouldn't be standing here preaching to you today. Dexter was jacked up, messed up, and in his trash when Jesus showed up and pulled me out of the trash can and clean me up and walk with me and talks with me and loves me. Anybody experience the grace of God on that level? And Zacchaeus, in verse 8, stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, and since he also is a son of Abraham, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, don't let that go past you. Grace came down to this unselfish, self-seeking, glory-seeking, defrauding. Zacchaeus was not a good dude. I mean, he wasn't the kind of guy you leave your purse and your wallet around. He He just was not a good dude. He was always out to get somebody. He was a taker. He was not a giver. But the Bible says the grace of God now comes down to Zacchaeus. And what happens? Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give everything that I have to the poor. And not only that, everybody that I did wrong, I'm going to give them fourfold. You tell me God's grace doesn't change people. There it is right there. This same grace came down to the church of Macedonia. And they had experienced the grace of God. And what was the result? of them experiencing the grace of God, we find generosity in a peculiar place. Verse 2, 
For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, the word Paul uses here for their extreme poverty is the word from which we derive the English word bathysphere. I had a picture up there. That right there is a bathysphere ship. And what it does is this little, this little object here, it plunges down into the depths of the ocean and it is able to withstand the pressure that comes as you explore the depths of the ocean. Paul, what are you trying to say to us this morning? Paul is trying to convey to us through this word that he uses is that the Macedonian church was plunged into the depths of being poor. This is not cute poor. This is not my check is coming soon. This is we don't know where our next meal is coming from. We don't know where our next shelter is coming from. They were poor of poor. This is not a game that Paul is talking about. These people were going through it. But what I love about this object, as I said, is that it is able to withstand the pressure. There is something about the grace of God that no matter what you're going through and what he sends you through, he's able to send you through the grace greatest difficulty without it crushing you, without it messing you up, without it losing your faith, because that's the kind of God that we serve, that he'll keep you through the storm and through the difficulty. In other words, Paul is saying the churches of Thessalonica and Philippi and Berea were plunged into the depths of poverty. You think of the poorest neighborhood in the world, and they would be able to compete with them. Now, wait a minute now. They were dirt poor, but Paul says something else that almost knocked me off my feet as I was studying. Not only were they poor, Paul said that they had an abundance of joy. Now, those two things usually don't go together. Extremely poor and an abundance of joy. The Macedonians had a joy that a lot of people do not experience. It is a joy that is authentic. It is not that public joy in that private sadness. A lot of us experience that. We walk around like everything is good. We post on Facebook that our job is good and our kids are good and our marriage is good. But on the other side of the computer screen, I am dying. I am crying. I am lost and I am searching. I don't have any joy. The only joy that I have is the joy that I make up. It's an artificial, superficial joy. I'm not happy in the inside. I'm breaking down. And if one more thing lands on me, I may lose it all. There are so many people that are going through difficulty and going through so much that they lost themselves. They don't know who they are. They're crying in the inside and they're looking for joy. And Paul says the Macedonian church were jacked up in jacked up situations, but yet they had an abundance of joy. God has a joy in Jesus that is authentic and real, that is not contingent on circumstances and situations, but is rooted in the unmovable, unshakable God of the universe. So they were poor materially, but rich spiritually. Now hold on. Doesn't sound like the preaching in America. A lot of the preaching that we hear they say things like, God wants us to live our best life now. And if you're broke, it's because you lack faith. How about, can you tell how much God loves you by the amount of money and cars and houses you have? 
Church, at this time, we put the impoverished thought of God's love for us is measured by our wealth under our feet and trample it along with the rest of the devil lies. Being a child of God does not come with a financial prerequisite. This sacred piece of scripture reminds us that God's children comes in, come in all kinds of economic conditions and that God loves his children that are poor and in the ghetto just as much as any of his other children. God loves you apart from what you have. See, church, these old poor saints had something better than silver and gold. I remember Peter echoing in the pages of Acts, silver and gold have I not, but I got a name, and that name is Jesus. The source of their joy was not because God had made them materially rich. Instead, their joy was in God. Their joy was not in what God gave them, but their joy was rooted in who God was. How many people know that God loves a cheerful giver? Yet some people dread offering time in the church. Some of us get up and go to the bathroom when it's offering time. But that's all right. We got cameras everywhere and we're watching you. <laughs> I'm just messing around. No, I'm not really. Do- no, I'm just messing around. <laughs> but the Lord wants us to give freely. And what should be the response of the church? We ought to be the most generous people in the universe. If you get the gospel You ought to be the most generous person in the universe. God emptied out his pockets on us. The old African-American preacher Gardner Taylor said, In Jesus was the endowment of heaven spilled out upon a filthy earth. He said, If we would have gone back to God after Jesus had come back to us and asked God for something more, God would have pulled his pockets out like a popper and said, I have nothing else to give. When God sent Jesus, he gave his best. He didn't give his second best. The book of Romans says, if he did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him give us all things? God gave us what was nearest and dearest to him. God sending Jesus was not easy. He has loved the son before the foundations of the world. And he gave him so that we may have life. And how much more ought the church then respond in amazing generosity? The world ought to be shocked by us and our generosity. And just when I thought Paul had really described all there was to describe about the church of Macedonia, that they were super poor, words will fail to describe it. Paul brings up something else. He says, in a severe test of affliction. So hold up, wait a minute, pump the brakes. So let me get this straight, Paul. The people of Macedonia are dirt poor in they are being crushed by life. Now, I don't know if you ever experienced that. I'm poor, and now life is beating me up. That's not fun. You ever been so poor that you've been paralyzed, you can't get out of bed? I don't want to get up. I mean, I've been so broke some days, I'm just like, I don't want to get up. It's just a bad attitude, right? But Paul says not only are they experiencing that, life is beating the crap out of them. One tribulation after another, hitting them and hitting them and hitting them. And Satan is wrapping life circumstances around the necks of the Macedonians, hoping to choke their faith out of them. 
The NSAB says it this way, great ordeal. Let's take the word great. It means severe, mega, big, large, grand, massive. Ordeal in Greek is dekomi. It means a test. It is used of putting metal in the furnace to test it. I got a friend that works at, at the mill in Gary, and he tells me how hot it is. I mean, it's extremely hot for them to get that metal the way that they want to. And Paul is saying that they're being tested like metal in the fire. They're going through it. So here you have a severe test by fire, suffering upon suffering. Paul refers to their suffering in the letter to the Thessalonians. Remember, the Thessalonians are part of the churches of Macedonia. In chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, he refers to that suffering. He says, you are enduring the same suffering at the hands of your own countrymen who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are running for their lives, and they're running from the same people who crucified our Lord and Savior. He also acknowledges that the church in Thessalonica was suffering in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 6. In much tribulation, you receive the word. But the thing that I love about God when it comes to suffering is that God is sovereign over all suffering, and he has a design for it. One preacher puts it this way. God takes our adversity and turns it into a university where he uses trouble not to harm us, but to build us up. I'm going to say that again because someone's going to need that a day from now, a year from now, maybe a month from now, maybe the next hour. God takes our adversity and turns it into a university where he uses trouble not to harm us, but to build us up. Is there anybody in here who knows what it's like to go through the fire? Oh, God will send you through some things in this life, but it is in the long suffering, it is in the quietness of the crucible that we are able and able to see that God is great as he says he is, that he's faithful as he says he is, that he's just as he says he is. It is in suffering that you find things out about God that you do not experience when times are are good. And so God will send you through trials and tribulations that he may chisel and conform you more into the image of Jesus. I tell you, church, God is at his best when life is at his worst. I love in the book of Corinthians when Paul says that in my weakness, his strength is made perfect. Paul learned how to depend on the strength of God through the trials and tribulations. It was the trials that kept him humble. It was the trials that allowed him to love Jesus, the way that he loved Jesus, God will use trials in order to bring you closer to him, but never to, to destroy you. There is a balm in Gilead. There is a morning star, the rose of Sharon, and his name is Jesus Christ. And if you depend on him, church, even when it's hard, he will keep you. Faith doesn't always deliver us from trials, but it is the very thing that helps us to get through them. Now, with that being the case, being crushed by the jaws of poverty and affliction, you would think that this church would fold up. You would think they would take their ball and go home. I mean, after all, it is within reason, right, for them to excuse themselves from the table of generosity. Heck, it's been a long day. It's been a long year. They're tired. But look at verses 2b through 4. Paul picks up. 
overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. You see, in the midst of their difficulty, in the, in, in the midst of their lack thereof, they don't have this poor me mentality. There is no, why are you asking us? We got our own problem mentality, right? Many of us, we go through stuff, where are you bothering me? I got my own problems. I got my own situation. Leave me alone. I've been asleep all night. I don't hear about other people's problems. That's not their attitude. In the midst of the prolonged, intense suffering and deprivation they gave, there is something, church, about God's love that no matter what pain you're going through, you remain to have a heart for others. Church, that is the power of grace. When grace comes down from God and we experience it, this love in our hearts is beating, it's controlling us. It, it's trying to make its way out. The love of God can't be contained. It can't be caged. There's something about the love of God that drives me to love other people. It drives us. You can't experience the love of God and cage it in. No, it's going to push its way out because God is a giving God, a loving God. And so if he's in you, if his love is in you, guess what's going to happen? I got to do something with this. This passion that I'm feeling, I got to go do something with it, namely love others with it. The love of God is so strong and so intense that it will push its way out. Paul said earlier in his book to the Corinthians that the love of God controls him. It controls him. I've actually had an an opportunity to witness this at the Gary campus. It is amazing to see this kind of love on display. There's a young lady at our campus. She has been struggling with MS and has survived cancer. I mean, that's enough right there, right? MS and cancer. Goodness gracious, right? But on top of all of that, she's enduring a very hard divorce. And yet and still, she comes to me and says, Pastor Dexter, how can I serve? I say, Hey, you need to be at home resting. I can't do that. I can't help myself. I need to be here serving people. I get a joy out of helping God's people. And that's not to talk about all the countless people as a pastor you go and see who are suffering with cancer in the hospital or or struggling with whatever. And most of the saints are saying, hey, Dex, how can I be on board? How can I help with what's going on? How can I be a part of the work of God? There's something about the love of God that makes us forget about our own situations and circumstances and become more concerned with others than ourselves. John Piper says, true love is the overflow of joy in God which meets the needs of others. True love is the overflow of joy in God, which meets the needs of others. Look at verse 4. He said, they begged Paul. They begged him. Those who are poor and struggling, they are begging Paul earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Get the picture here of what these people are going through. I want you to feel that. 
and yet they're wanting to be generous. Those who were dirt poor, beat down by life, begged Paul. Their severe hardship had no negative effect on their giving. Even in the middle of such dire circumstances, they weren't thinking about themselves. They were thinking of others. And here's the amazing part. Not only were they thinking of others, they wanted to give to people they never met. Now, if I'm going through a hard time, I may give to people I know. I'm more inclined to do that. But if I don't know you, and then you want me to give, and I'm going through it, that's the real test. But here's the amazing part. They had never met the saints in Jerusalem. They didn't even know them personally. And yet they would selfishly, out of their own terrible distress, sacrifice for folks they have never even met. But they were part of the body of Christ in a different location. Yet we are one church in four locations. We might not know all our brothers and sisters at every campus, but there ought to be a heart in us and a concern for how our brothers and sisters are doing across the campuses. And not only that, the church abroad. In fact, Paul talked about uh, the the attitude of, 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 of the church of Corinth or the attitude they should have in, in, in his first letter to them, 1 Corinthians 13, 3. He says, if I give away all I have, and, I, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Do you know you can give up everything, even your body for a cause, and that not be loving? Why? Because as long as your giving has to do with you or pointing to you, that's not love. When we give so, so that it benefits us or, or, or we give for just some human need, that is not love. The act within itself is love. But the end goal is not love. All giving must be done for the glory of God or it's not love. Anything done outside of faith is sin. This is why generosity must start with God filling our heart. You want to be a generous person? Look to Jesus. See more of him. Enjoy more of him. Be more satisfied in him. If you want to be a natural, organic giving person, you got to see Jesus. Can I tell you this morning that if you hate people or you close your heart to people, that you are not as holy as you think you are? I know that's hard, right? Many people come to church and put on a new uniform and look apart. You know what the Bible equates holiness with? Loving our brothers and sisters, loving human beings made in the image of God. If you don't do that, the love of God can't be in you. James says this, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and feel without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? First John says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, we don't like reading verses like this, yet closes his heart against him, how does God love abide in him? He says it's impossible for you to see and don't do. And we don't do so that we can be saved. We do because we are saved, right? This is our work-based theology where I do good in order to gain God's favor. No. I give because God has shown his favor to me. I say according to this verse, these verses, the church of Macedonia had it right. 
Now Paul has clearly articulated to the church of Corinth what the Macedonian church has done for the church in Jerusalem. And now Paul turns to the church of Corinth and he says, now, let me talk to you for a minute. Let me pull up my chair at the table with you and address you for a second. Paul now turns to the church of Corinth who was not experiencing what their sister church, the Macedonians, were experiencing. They didn't have the same challenges. In fact, the church of Corinth had an abundance. They were experiencing wealth at the time. And Paul says, I want you to follow in the example of the Macedonian church. The question, was it their financial giving that Paul wanted them to follow mainly? No. Of course he wanted them to give financially, but that's not what he wanted them to pick up. What was their example, church? They cared about the welfare of others more than themselves, and that is what Paul wants them to see. You see, the churches in Macedonia put to practice what the Apostle Paul had instructed them to do. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, I'm not asking for you to treat generosity like a checklist. That is not what God is after. God is not after us treating generosity like a checklist. Oh, I gave in the offering plate, check, done. That's not what God is after. Where you give a little offering when the plate comes around and give little to nothing of God for the rest of the week. I'm asking for more than that. I want generosity to be the posture of the church's life. I want it to be the posture of the life. I want it to be the characteristic of the church. Generous, because here's the reality, church. Generosity has a name. You can identify it, and the name is Jesus. Jesus gave every drop of his blood so he couldn't give any more. He emptied himself for us. Now, I've thought of many illustrations to give you to drive this point home. But the only thing that kept rising in the text is the cross of Jesus Christ. All the Macedonian church is doing is reflecting Jesus in the gospel. They were afflicted. The Bible says Jesus was afflicted. They were poor. The Bible says that Jesus became poor so that we may become rich. The poor gave so that others may become rich. True generosity looks like Jesus, friend. The most generous being in the universe is God Almighty. True generosity doesn't just throw money at people's problems, but it enters into their pain and it feels with them and it cries with them and it hurts with them. It is so easy for us to throw money at people's problems, but true generosity, true love walks with me. It holds me. It says that I'm carrying the burden with you. True generosity is willing to be inconvenienced for others. That's what true generosity does. You ever been hurting so bad that you didn't need money? I need a hug. I need somebody to talk to me. I'm struggling right now. Somebody to understand when I'm I ear, a shoulder to lean on. True generosity cares for people, church. It does, and it feels their pain. A generous people it made a difference. The Macedonian church, they were being living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Church, it is time that we stop acting like we love people and to truly love them. Our orthodoxy 
needs to be confirmed by our orthopraxy. You can know all the theology in the world. You can know all the theology books, but the Bible says if you do not have love, what does it mean? And a lot of us think that we're good because we can articulate the gospel, whoop de doo that's good for you, and we're proud of you. But if that gospel that you're able to articulate doesn't do something here, there's something massive wrong with the heart. We ought to care about people because, well, God cares about them. And many of us hear pastors like this and say, man, I wish I can be like the churches of Macedonia. Have that sold-out attitude for God. I wish I could love people like that. I tell you right now, if you pray that prayer to God, God will answer that prayer. He will answer that prayer. God, make me generous like the Macedonian church. I guarantee you that God Almighty will answer that prayer. You got to know, church, that real living is living for God by giving ourselves to our church and to our community. Now, we must ask ourselves. Are we giving our time to the Lord, or are we too busy to put him on our planet? Are we giving God our money, or are we too busy spending it on everything that's trending? Are we giving him our talents? Are we stewarding those spiritual gifts we've been given, and why have they been given to us? For the health of our brothers and sisters, the body of Christ, right here in this local church and the church abroad. When was the last time you allowed yourself to be inconvenienced for another human being? Anybody wake up and say, hey, I want to be inconvenienced. I want my schedule thrown off for another human being. Anybody wake up that way? Not at all. But we got to pray that God makes us that way. I want to be inconvenienced for another human being. Or is getting home to watch the game more important than an image bearer of God? When was the last time you served your spouse? Last time you told your wife, husbands, stay in the bed, I got this. Rest up, I'll stay up with the kids. It was the last time you served your spouse. Got home ready for them just so that they can relax. When the last time you did that, married people? Wonder how many of us say we love Jesus but hate to live like him. And can I challenge you this morning to really take time and ask yourself, what am I and who am I living for? To look at our calendar and to evaluate our lives and say, God, am I living for you? I was talking to Pastor Dan, and he tells me that there's over 100 children in the children's church here on Sunday. God help you all. <laughs> but I wonder what would happen if Ruthie experiences the love like the Macedonian church from this church. Ruthie, how can we serve the next generation? I want to get involved. I want to impact that kid's life. Or are we more concerned about filling our own selves? And we forget about even the children in our building. Pastor Dan is going to come next week and he's really going to drive home some of his serving points and the opportunities that he has. I want to encourage you this week to be praying about, God, how can I give myself for the sake of the gospel? What would happen if HP stood to their feet and said, this is our city and we're taking it for Jesus. God has planted us here and we're going to give everything 
for the glory of the king. The world has yet to imagine what God can do with his church. When collectively we say we're not thinking about ourselves. We're thinking about the glory of God. Oh, God Almighty, help us. Kingdom of darkness will receive a blow that they never experienced in this city. If we become generous people, how does this story resonate with us today? Is our Christianity just a badge or a label, or are we part of God's plan? What can we do to live a life of generosity here at Bethel? Again, I look to the church of Macedonia, verse 5. And this, not as we expect, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Isn't it funny that as the church of Macedonia gave themselves to God, God in return gave them to people. The invitation to pick up our cross and follow Christ goes out to all of us in this room today. And it is an invitation to live a sacrificial life for others for the sake of God. It is an invitation to live a sacrificial life for others for the sake of God. It is an invitation to live a sacrificial life for the glory of God for the sake of others. It is an invitation to live a sacrificial life for others for the sake of God. It is an invitation to participate in Christ's joy. The invitation goes out and you are called to respond. The good news is this. When we give all that we have to the Lord in faith and trust, we can trust him to provide everything we need and a whole lot more.